We talk a lot on this podcast about chess improvement, but when it comes to improving your hiring processes, Indeed is the platform you need. Indeed has over 350 million global monthly visitors, and it has a matching engine that helps you find quality work candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with your candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Years ago, when I was running a chess teaching business, I found it hard to find good help, and I had to go through a lot of back and forth to even screen potential candidates. Indeed allows you to do those things efficiently in one place. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed for hiring, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of Perpetual Chess will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility if you go to Indeed.com slash chess. Just go to Indeed.com slash chess right now, and you'll be supporting our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast, Indeed.com slash chess. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, everyone. I am Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. Perpetual Chess is a weekly chess interview show where we talk with accomplished chess players, authors, and personalities about their lives, their careers, and how to improve at chess. Perpetual Chess is brought to you through the generosity of its Patreon and PayPal supporters and by Chessable.com. Hey everyone, welcome back to Perpetual Chess, Chess Books Recaptured. We are here this month to discuss one of my favorite authors, one of our guest co-hosts' favorite authors. Uh, Jenna Sasanko is the author and the guest uh, goes by the name of Vieko Niemitz. He's a longtime um, friend of the pod. Uh, he has a website called Chess Essentials. He does some work for Chessables. He has a course uh, for Chessable um, called the Winning with the Modern, I believe. He'll, he can correct me in a minute. Um, but has a great blog where he writes about a lot of chess books. And, um, and now he is going to hop in and join us. Vieko, how are you? Oh, thank you, Ben, for the wonderful introduction. I'm really, really excited to be here. Uh, I just have two little corrections. Uh, it's not uh, winning with the modern or something like that, because no one sane would ever call his course <laughs> winning with the modern, like maybe suffering with the modern. And <laughs> right. would be... Suffering suffering less. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And the second correction is, uh, it's not chess essentials. It's kind of chess, chess essentials. 
you know, kind of the, okay. the funny stuff. Uh, although, yeah, uh, many people confuse it. That was me trying to be funny. Got you. Yeah, yeah Bjeko, you're good. You're you're quite an impressive English writer and speaker that you're able to do the puns in English. And I apologize. I know I've made that mistake before, so <laughs> um, so I apologize for doing it again. It's a chess essentials, and and yeah. So we're here to talk Genis Sasenko, uh, Sasanko, who wrote the. Um, I mean, he's written so many excellent books. He's been on the show. Um, so listeners, if you haven't already, you should go back and listen. It was in uh, June of 2018, episode 80. Um, he's a legendary author, grandmaster who grew up in the Soviet Union and made his way to the Netherlands. And now he writes these one-of-a-kind books. Um, so Vieko uh, was the one who volunteered to pick a Sasanko book. Um, so Vieko, what was your thought process behind uh, kindly volunteering to help us recap a Jenna Sasanko book? Well, there was not much of a thought process, actually. I mean, when I saw that you are launching this uh, book podcast, uh, it was immediately my idea to uh, recommend one of my favorite authors, uh, Jenna Sosonko. So it was really a no-brainer. Uh, I have to say that I did uh, <laughs> try to recommend a different book, but then we kind of diverged to the uh, one in, at hand, the world champions I knew. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, go on. Sorry, I feel like I should hop in and explain myself. So yeah, um, Sasanko has written six books uh, in English to date. Um, and yeah, this is probably not his best book. I think we both agree. But the reason I kind of, once once Vieco volunteered to, to do a Sasanko book, I kind of uh, <laughs> gently prodded him to do this one, I guess you could say, just because I feel like this one is the most accessible, even if it's not the best, because it's about world champions and um, Vieco can tell you briefly a little bit more about his other works. Um, but the other ones are, are well, there's a few. Vieco, why don't you tell <laughs> us a bit about his other works? Yeah, yeah I mean, uh, I wanted to go full elitist here, but Ben, I think, made the same thing because for somebody who is maybe not so familiar or not such a huge fan of the chess history, uh, maybe this uh, book about the world champions is slightly more accessible than the other books. But it has to be pointed out that Sonko made a living writing about Soviet chess, Soviet era, and Soviet chess players. And uh, the reason I'm really fond of his style is that he uh, digs stories about these half-forgotten chess masters like uh, Genrich Chepukaitis or uh, Ratmir Komov and then puts them into the context of the Soviet times. He writes a lot about the Soviet hierarchy, uh, the politics and behind the scenes. And uh, he also has a very personal style because he writes about grandmasters he knew himself, as we will probably discuss in this book. Well said, Vako. I, I agree that um, his writing is, is just so evocative. That's the one thing that strikes me about it. I mean... He, when he's having dialogue with these champions, I mean, he quotes them and it's like, he quotes them talking to him. So they'll be like, you know, Smyslov saying like, Jenna, meet me for breakfast at five or, you know, or, or whatever it might be. And you just really feel like you're there. So, and, and personally, I, I have to admit, I've only read his last three books that his, his first three, which are some of the ones you mentioned, smart chip from St. Petersburg. Um, and, Help me out with the other titles, Vyako. Uh There are Russian Silhouettes uh, and Re Reliable Past. I think these three are mainly about the Soviet uh, times and Soviet chess players. He did write uh, some, let's say, biographies on a single player, most notably uh, on Viktor Korchnoi. Uh, I, I kind of forgot the title right now. And he also has a separate book about Vasily Smyslov and one very painful, I would say, about David Bronstein. And yeah, I agree, it's very, very... 
very nice how he writes about these players. He quotes them directly. He writes about the phone conversations with them or actual conversations he had with them in the person. And he doesn't really filter or edit anything. He kind of writes their words down as they said them. And you really get the feeling that through his <laughs> conversations, you kind of get to know these players as well, I would say. Yeah. And when he was on the show, of course, we talked about his Bronstein book a lot, which was fairly recent um, at the time. So yeah, I mean, there's a lot to dig into. I certainly intend to read his full catalog. And um, just based on how he writes and based on Vieco's recommendation, I would, um, I, I, I feel very safe endorsing them. But I did feel like this was the best intro. And then for listeners who end up either just having their interest peaked or reading this um, and wanting to read more, you can then go back and read his that are kind of like the deeper cuts that are really take you into the the Soviet chess era. Um, but so this one is about the seven world champions that he knew, although he didn't quite know them all, we have to say. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes. So he writes about uh, the lineage starting from Capablanca all the way to to Peterson, I believe. So these are seven consecutive world champions. And obviously he didn't personally know Capablanca nor Alekhine, which about him, about whom he also writes in the first two chapters. So it, it's kind of, it was kind of filler or, or, <laughs> or a lie in the, in the title of the book. But yeah, the majority of them he knew personally quite well. Yeah, so it's Alekhine, Capablanca, Uwe, Botvinnik, Smyslav, Tal, and Petrosian are the seven authors he discusses. And yeah, filler is a good way to put it, unfortunately. I mean, I love Sasanko, but uh, if if you're listening, I mean, we just have to call a spade a spade. <laughs> you know, it's yeah, not yeah. A, it's, it's not a super long book, and he he um he had very personal, extremely evocative experiences with some of these world champions that make the book highly worthwhile but not with all of the ones that are covered. And, and we'll be digging into that more as we go on. One other thing we should say is uh, this is a book with zero actual chess in it. Uh, we even have a quote about that that we'll get to that eventually. But we're not even going to pretend and talk about famous games, you know, that may have been mentioned offhand in the book. I mean, this one is straight prose, straight sort of oral history. And that's what we'll be doing on this this month. And then uh, for next month's um, chess books recaptured we'll be getting back to something with um some actual chess in it so uh Vieco, do you want to share a little bit more about sasanko's biography just for anyone who who um who may not be as familiar with him uh well yeah so sasanko was uh, originally obviously born in the soviet union and uh, i think back in the, in the day he was uh, he reached the title of international master or maybe not even then or maybe he was just a master now i'm not sure from the top I think he made it right when he emigrated to to Holland. He he I think he emigrated to Holland I believe in 72 and I think he made I am uh, a couple years later. Yeah and and uh, ultimately he made the grandmaster. Although that just maybe shows how strong these Soviet players who didn't get the opportunity to play a lot in in, in foreign tournaments were because Sosonko. I mean I think he worked as a second to many many of these players who were actually mentioned in the book and uh, analyze with them. Uh, and so immediately after he leaves the Soviet Union, he becomes an international master. So I think it's quite a fit. Yeah, I mean, he was a chess professional. In fact, in in the section about Max Oive, he mentions that 
Oive, who was, of course, a world champion, but also later the president of FIDE, he made a conscious push to sort of um, expand the number of grandmasters in the world. So at the time that Sasanko was trying to earn his titles, there were um, probably fewer than 100 grandmasters in the world, um, certainly a lot less than the 1600 or so that, that exist now. Um, so it, it was just a, a different thing. And as you say, the titles themselves were, were more challenging to earn. So, But he was certainly... You know, he was someone in the top echelon of chess players, even if he wasn't exactly a world champion contender himself. He certainly um, moved around in those circles. Yeah, and he and he also later become very famous, obviously, because of his defection to the West. So he emigrated from the Soviet Union via Israel, I believe, uh, to yeah. the Netherlands. And, uh, you know, he was kind of precedent uh, for the much more famous emigration emigration from the Soviet Union that happened uh, four years later, that is, of course, uh, the emigration of Viktor Korchnoi. And actually, he played a very major role in Korchnoi's decision to emigrate as well, because he obviously had the experience, and Korchnoi, just very briefly before he emigrated, he actually talked with both Sasonko and uh, Oive uh, about the potential consequences and whether he should do it or not. So, yeah, kind of kind of historic figure in, in chess history, as well as obviously very strong player, I would say. Yeah, and of course, we're just we're just so lucky that he's also an amazing writer. I mean, there's obviously there's tons of, um, you know, there's been tons of, of chess players of his caliber, even though he's an amazing player. There's hundreds of people um, who were on his level over the years, but there's no one that can write like him and can share these experiences like him. So, um, yeah. I mean, he's quote. Quite accomplished, won the Dutch Championship in 1973 and 1978 jointly. Won a bunch of other tournaments. Played on the Dutch, played for the Dutch team in the Olympiad 11 times. But I would say his greatest contribution is as a writer. Yeah, I think that um, it's not only uh, about the fact that he was like let's say qualified to write about these topics because he obviously lived on both sides of the Iron Curtain. But it's kind of he's very very talented. As a writer, as we will see, I think later there are many, very memorable quotes, and he writes very beautifully, poetically, almost. And also his uh, erudition and general knowledge of literature, of uh, music, of uh, you know just general culture is a number of references he he puts into the, his books is astounding be honest and it's really very very beautiful to read his books even though it has to be pointed out that they are by no means a tool for chess improvement so uh, yeah yeah not at all not at all chess improvement related but yeah great pleasure to listen unfortunately i don't think that they're an audiobook if anyone's wondering about that that would be a great way to excuse me get some chess history on the go um but definitely um great couch reading um and we'll we'll enrich your appreciation of chess and as Vieco says you also you get some great quotes from outside of chess because he's good at drawing in um, other you know other fields and of course you get great historical perspective especially just for I mean what it must have been like to live in the Soviet uh, era so the book is from new in chess publishing um, published in 2013 and the foreword is by none other than Gary Kasparov who um, who wrote a, a really glowing forward. And this, this just to give you a little taste, Kasparov said, this new book by a wonderful man of letters, Jenna Sosanko, is dedicated to the world chess champions. A former Soviet chess master and trainer who once assisted Tal and Korchnoi, and now a famous international grandmaster who's been living in the West for 40 years already. 
Sosanko doesn't know the champions by hearsay. He met most of them more than once and not only at the chessboard. Um, so that kind of sets the scene for the book. Um, so I think we should dig in. What do you think, Fiaco? Yeah, that sounds good. Uh, I think there's, yeah. we have introduced <laughs> Sosanko a lot. So Yeah, and we should mention we both read the book on Kindle. It's pretty inexpensive on Kindle and great for highlighting the many memorable quotes. Um, so we're going to dig into the book and be- kick off by reading the first page. But first, we're going to take a quick break to hear from both of our friends at Chessable. Hello there, listeners. I wanted to call your attention this week to two courses from Chessable.com. Number one, The Modern Defense Against Everything by our guest co-host Vyacheslav Nemitz. It's pretty new. It came out in February. Vyacheslav's got a 2600 Chess.com Blitz rating, as we talk about on this show, and he attributes a lot of his success to his quickness with knowing this opening. So go to Chessable.com and have a look. The other thing is I wanted to call your attention to former U.S. champion Sam Shanklin's brand new course, Lifetime Repertoires, Black versus the English Ready and Sidelines. I personally find these openings super boring to play against, so it would be nice to actually know what I'm doing and learn from renowned theoretician Sam Shanklin. So go to chessable.com and have a look at these courses. Okay, and we're back and we are ready to dig into this excellent book. And of course, we like to kick things off just by reading some from the first page of the book, the thing that sort of is, is most emblematic of how of the tone of the book. And for this, for this one, I felt like I kind of had to do um, a, a big excerpt. So I'm going to read right how the book kicks off right after Kasparov's uh, preface. And here we go. These are the words of Jenna Sasanko. He says, Life has given me the gift of meetings with many world champions. Their achievements and games are known to everyone, so there are no diagrams in the book that you hold in your hands. Guided by the advice of Henri Kine, who once wrote, there is nothing more boring on this earth than to have to read the description of an Italian journey, except maybe to have to write one. And the writer can only make it halfway bearable by speaking as little as possible of Italy itself. I'll say as little as possible about chess itself. Most people's perceptions are limited by a single culture, while an emigre is familiar with at least two. This kind of outlook broadens your worldview, allowing you to look at events, people, and countries from various perspectives, especially as happened in my case, when the difference between two cultures and lifestyles is gigantic. My desk is positioned a considerable distance away from the country where I was born and where I spent the first three decades of my life. It is the same one that has served as my faithful and true chess table which is perhaps why the black and white squares of the chessboard permeate everything I write about. Okay, and off he goes from there, and you, it really gives you a sense for, for his, his great writing style. Um, and, of course, I can relate to the, to the quote about, um, about talking as little about the actual chess as possible, because that's basically <laughs> what I endeavor to do on this podcast, being that it's an audio-only podcast about a, a board game that that's um, right up my alley for sure. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that this introductory passage already captures uh, the features of the Sonko writing style. Like, I mean, just the use of the words like gigantic, permeate, uh, I don't know, it's, it's really, really, really beautiful and top-notch writing, I would say. Yeah. And yeah. and within those first few pages, he goes on to have a few more sort of shorter evocative quotes, such as um, he says when he when he wants to write about the world champions, he wanted to share the things that they themselves didn't notice. And he also says, um, getting back to what we were saying about why we like him so much under the mask of the of a chess player, I always remained a storyteller. Yeah, I think the quote about uh, sharing the things that the 
players themselves didn't notice is particularly important or, or the reason why I like Sosonko or another reason why I like Sosonko's book so much because he doesn't shy away from talking about difficult topics and difficult aspects of the chess player's character. So usually when you read these biographies by great players, I mean, they are kind of biased in their favor, I would say, but he doesn't shy away from showing both sides of the medal, which will be especially apparent uh, in the chapter about Tao, I believe. Yeah, the chapter about Tal, yeah. and certainly anyone who's read his his uh, biography of Bronstein, that that one is uh, very informative, and um, I, I enjoyed it overall, but it can be painful to read at times. Yeah, I think that John Hartman did a fantastic review of that book on his chess book reviews, and he really captured how I've personally felt uh, <laughs> in his review. So it, it's really like, gives you mixed feelings of kind of relating to some stuff or the pain, and also, like, just um, not being at ease with, with some traits of Bronstein's character, I would say. But that's maybe now digressing from the topic at hand. Yeah, but shout out to John Hartman. I enjoyed his review as well, as as we always do. Um, so let's get to the champions. I mean, without further ado. So Vieco and I decided that the way we would do this, rather than just take it in a strictly linear um, discussion of the chapters in the order that they're written, we would rank the chapters. Um, both of us, um, we had similar tastes in what our favorite chapters are, but one thing we'll say is, um, um, the, you know, we're going to save the best for last. So please stick with us. I mean, there's insights about all of the players, but as we'll say, it's a, as we've already hinted, it's a pretty uneven book in both of our opinions. There's a lot more insight in the people that he knows personally. Um, so without further ado, Vieco, what was your least favorite chapter in the world champions I knew? Yeah. So my least favorite. A favorite chapter of the book was actually the very first chapter of the book, and that is uh, the chapter about Jose Raul Capablanca, which, as we mentioned, Sosonko obviously didn't know because, if I'm not mistaken, Sosonko was born uh, one year after Capablanca died. Uh, yeah, I think he said that. Yeah, I think he, it is stated somewhere. And the reason why I'm not fond of this chapter is because it is... in. Uh, so I should probably explain that... Uh, the, this chapter is written on the basis of um, conversations Sosonko had with Capablanca's widow, Olga, uh, with which were conducted in her apartment in New York. So he didn't personally know Capablanca. And um, her account about uh, the Cuban is pretty one-sided. So we have just discussed how Sosonko usually aims to provide both sides of the medal. And this chapter is both devoid of his personal impressions of Capablanca because he listens to them secondhand. And also, uh, this, her, Capablanca's widow accounts a very biased uh, account on Capablanca being like this brilliant genius who was, you know, effortlessly good at chess and basically everything else he touched. And uh, yeah, that, that kind of gets boring, boring after a while, I would say. Yeah, it's definitely a glowing portrait of, of her. Um, of uh, Capablanca by um, his his wife. But I mean, I would just like to say if my wife ever gets interviewed, I would like for her to give <laughs> such a glowing portrait as well. So. Yeah, this, this may be a bit dark, but when you're alive <laughs> or after you die? I'll, I'll take it. If she's going to talk about me that way, just, you know, <laughs> it doesn't matter to me. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. but yeah, so it, for me, it was my second least favorite. I, and 
I liked it far better than the Aoyekin chapter, as we'll get to, because I think your criticisms are valid. But a couple of things I would say is, number one, I mean, Capablanca really was a, a, a bad MF. I mean, he really was amazing at a lot of things and, and uh, you know, once in a lifetime talent. So I understand why she would speak of him in such glowing terms. But the other thing is just, I at least felt like this chapter had a narrative, you know? I mean, he tells the story of going to New York and meeting her and being received by her and then seeing her on subsequent videos, I mean, of visits. So I understand that it's not the same as him knowing the champion and it's not a totally balanced portrait, but I at least learned things that I felt like it's a firsthand account similar to his other work. I, um, as opposed to the Al Yekin one, which we'll get to. So that's where, yeah. where I stand. But I do think, sorry, you can hop in, Vyako. Go ahead. Yeah, if I may just interject, I wanted to say that uh, obviously my account is very subjective and it may have something to do with the fact that in the eternal debate, Capablanca versus Alekine, I'm firmly in the Alekine's camp. Ah, you're so. team Alekine, huh? Yeah, yeah, totally. So Okay, yeah, I'm, I'm in the tank for Capablanca. So yeah, that, that might have something to do with it. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, and just for, for any listeners um, not aware of Capablanca, first of all, you should definitely make yourselves aware, but he was the third world champion and certainly in the, the handful of people gets that gets listed in the top five to 10 players of all times. Very natural um, and intuitive chess player. Um, so his wife was named Olga. She was actually um, Soviet by birth. Um, and just we're only going to share a few quotes again about these chapters that we didn't like as much, but they definitely back up what Vyeka was saying about... Um, how glowing it was. Here's one from Olga. She says, you must understand he was a king and in every way conducted himself like a king. When someone before a simul asked for him to be pointed out, they said, when they enter the hall, you will see yourself who is Capablanca. Yeah, if I may also add another one. Um, so, so Sonko actually kind of agrees with my viewpoint, or I should say I agree with his viewpoint, because even he points out that this perfection can get boring. Um at, at, there is an instance in the chapter where he uh, returns back to New York and then writes how he decided against visiting her a, another time. Because uh, if I may quote, Olga talked about Capablanca as something perfect and perfection has only one defect. It can become tedious. Yeah. So, yeah, so. I, I mean, I, I, I know that Capablanca was an outstanding individual, but I kind of find it hard to believe that he was so perfect as everybody tries to describe him. And I would have liked to kind of unravel at least one flaw or, you know, duality of his character in, in, in a maybe more balanced account. But okay. Yeah, yeah, it's true. I mean, she she says he barely studied chess, which in itself is hard to believe. I mean, she did know him sort of past his pinnacle, but it's still, it, it's hard to believe someone of that caliber would, would not look at chess that much. And she talks about how he could have been world-class at music, you know, great at billiards, table tennis. Of course, he played baseball in college. So yeah, there's, um, there's, I, I definitely understand what you're saying. Um, and of course, um, Capablanca does have a reputation that, that women loved him and she discusses that. Um, he met her at a party and apparently, according to um, Edward Winter, who quoted a long article that she herself wrote that, that, um, that Olga Capablanca Clark herself wrote where when they met at this party, Capablanca said, someday you and I will be married. So <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, that's, exactly. That's that's a smooth pickup line. Exactly. I should try that once. Yeah, I don't know if you can use it every time, Bjeko, but uh, definitely on special yeah. occasions. 
And also, perhaps, sorry, uh, perhaps I just wanted to mention yeah. that Edward Winter is the famous chess historian who is very meticulous about chess history. So usually when he writes something about anybody, basically, you can rely that it's true or reliable or researched at the very least. Yes, I, yes, well said. Uh, so anything else from Capablanca before we, we move on? Well, maybe just the fact that I, found, that I found very interesting that she said that he basically never played Blitz for pleasure. Right. Which is also maybe... Yeah debatable but or hard to believe at least for me yeah yeah it is i mean and she said that he was reading all the time but not about chess um again might be true but but certainly would be unusual for for a world champion yeah but the very fact that we are asking us ourselves whether something is true is already like a minus for this chapter in my eyes so yeah i mean you would hope that one's wife would be a somewhat reliable source but but yeah, I mean, it's just hard to know. And, and of course, sometimes you can, you would not intentionally just, um, I think Sasanko himself says at some point that, you know, when someone passes away, kind of often like the bad memories will, will fade and the good memories will kind of rise to the top. So there could be some of that element where she's not intentionally um, just painting this glowing picture of him, but that's legitimately how she remembers him once he's no longer around. So Olga lived to be 95, and as uh, Vieco mentioned, Sasanko did not see her in his his last visit to New York before she passed away. But that does give you a little flavor of what that chapter's like. Um, and we should move on to your second least favorite chapter, Vieco. Uh, and your first, uh, yeah. your first least favorite, and that's the chapter about Alekhin. Yeah. Or Alekhin. How yeah. is he pronounced? I'm never sure. Yeah, I um, I just switch back and forth so that no one's happy. <laughs> um, yeah, but of course, Alyekin, fourth world champion, held the title for a total of seventeen years, and unequivocally one of the strongest players ever. Um, so, of course, and you know, an interesting character, not uh, universally admired uh, away from the board, to say the least. Yeah, um, yeah very controversial and uh, very peculiar in a sense that his fate, so to speak, was uh, heavily influenced by both world wars. Wars. Uh, so both in the World, world War One and World War Two, he had, uh, let's say, issues with authorities. In the World War One, with the Soviet ones, and in the World War Two, with with Nazi Germany. Yeah, um, yeah, qu- quite a you know quite a, a rich life, and both um, in and out of chess. Um, so. Yeah. What was it? What are your? Um, I mean, I don't want to just go straight to complaints, but I guess I would say, what is your overall take on this chapter, Vieco? Shouldn't you be you be the one who complains about this one? Okay, uh, yeah, favorite, favorite. yeah. <laughs> I can just fill, fill in what you missed, maybe. Okay, <laughs> I mean, for me, what it was, and again, Genesis Anko, if you're listening, we do love you. The we're gonna make up for this when we talk about the later <laughs> chapters, but uh. I just felt like it was kind of a random assortment of observations with no real through line. There was no like driving narrative. Um, That's why I was saying I liked it even less than the Capablanca chapter, because at least that was one person's story. Whereas this was just sort of like a collection of observations. Um, Vieco mentioned there that it might be filler. You know, I mean, uh, you know, we do need to, to compile a book. And I did just sort of feel like there wasn't anything that original about Alyekin, I mean, of course, Sasanko, I'm sure in many instances was one degree of separation um, from him, but I still didn't feel like it was woven into a, a comprehensive narrative. I mean, he did talk about some personalities, traits and stuff, but 
you know, when he talks about the later champions, the ones that he lived alongside, you really feel like you're there. And obviously that's not going to be the case with, uh, with, with the Ayakin chapter. Yeah, I, I agree that this is somewhat incoherent and actually it might have something to do. Now I'm not sure, but I read, uh, an, uh, one Amazon review of the book and it mentioned that, uh, it complained about the lack of coherence all, all throughout the book. And he mentioned that the reason for that is because, uh, all these stories were, or parts of these stories uh, and chapters were already featured in other publications. So maybe this one, you know, is like a collection of several articles and hence the feeling of incoherence. Uh, yeah, because like, for example, with the Petrosian chapters, it's it's the, fir the first six chapters are six world champions in six chapters, even though they're very different in length. Um, but then Petrosian, there's just kind of three different chapters about him. Um, which would definitely fit in with a theory of these were three essays that were just kind of yeah. all all plopped in there. Yeah, so, okay, I, I don't have much to add to these complaints, although I do have uh, one big complaint of my own. And that is, I, I mean, the, uh, incoherence bothered me to, to an extent, but what bothered me even more was a lack of any sort of citations and quotes uh, of, or references for all the stories and claims from that chapter. So... Um, there are, you know, there are stories about Alekin being in masonry. Then the ever never-ending story about him drinking. Then there is also controversy about him being murdered on deathbed. And uh, you know, there, there are all those stories are kind of more like rumors, or like um, um, not, not they're not confirmed by by evidence. And Sosonko doesn't, as far as I know, provide any references for this chapter. And actually, there is a great art, art article by Winter, which we mentioned earlier, about the import, importance of starting to include references into chess history in general, uh, because else it uh, comes down to banalities and, you know, entertaining fun stories. Uh, and, you know, he points out that only with including references and citations will be, we start to take chess history more seriously. And I think that this aspect is particularly important when it comes to Avekain, who had as I have said, such a rich and, you know, controversial story intertwined with, with two world wars. So, you know, uh, a, a, lot, a lot of there to, to take into account, I would say. Yeah, and generally, Sasanko's writing style doesn't necessarily lend itself to references when he's doing personal recollections, but because, because Aoyakin was before his time, it's not really personal recollection. So... Uh, I agree. Um, it's it's not the best source. I mean, and there's no there's no part of the book where I was like really suffering when I was reading it. But definitely, um, these are the weaker parts of the book. Um, yeah, we are we are maybe too negative on con conveying the wrong uh, the wrong impression. I mean, it's still fun to read, but uh, in, in contrast to other chapters or some other books, it's 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 kind of you know there's a you can feel the difference uh it's precisely because sonko didn't know these two players and i think he's best when he wrote on personal account where precisely these sorts of references are not the most important thing in the world yeah and i mean after all the book is called the world champions i knew so um <laughs> yeah 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 um okay so who was your third what was your third least chapter and this is where it gets interesting because now we're to the point where he really did know the five remaining um the five remaining champions yeah, this is where we really start uh, diverging in our opinion, I would say. Yeah. So my, my least f f favorite chapter was uh, the chapter about Smyslov. So he, he after Kapovanka and Alekhine, he writes uh, chronologically about uh, Oive, 
with Phoenix and then Smyslov, and the Smyslov one was my least favorite. Yeah, I liked I, I liked the yeah. Smyslov one. Um, I mean, I think we both liked it. I think we're kind of splitting hairs once we get. I mean, I feel like we both thought the tall one was the best, and the the first two were the worst, and then the ones three through six, I think, are in between. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like uh, it's it's the weakest of the remaining five. It, it's not by any means bad. Uh, my my problem with the Smyslov was that I have read uh, previously his book Smyslov on the Couch, which is like a very broad account on the Smyslov and kind of many things uh, that are present in this chapter were familiar to me from that book, and that was especially true on the second reading. So so we did re- reread the book before this episode. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so I'm going to hop in and read a quote, and we'll be doing a lot more quotes uh, from here on out, but just because, like, like Becco mentioned earlier, there's so much good stuff. So he, he just jumps right in to the chapter and talks about Smyslov um, offering to meet him for breakfast um, in Tilburg, 1992. Um, so he says, uh, I knew you'd come, Jenna. Sit down. I haven't slept since five. I was tormented at first. What made an old idiot like me play the Pierce in the last game? And then I started thinking about my age, and it just seemed unreal. How can I be 71 years old? How can this be possible? Then I remembered going on holiday to Sevastopol with my father and mother. It was like yesterday, but in fact, it was the summer of 1928. You wouldn't believe it. Jenna, but since then, I've never been to the Crimea again. I've been to Argentina, Iceland, the Philippines. I've been everywhere except to the Crimea. And then I started going over my life. Ah, if Mother Volga could flow back and then if we could start to live our lives again. So yeah. very stark contrast to the chapters we were just discussing, very personal. And I just love the way, I mean, I don't know what his style was. I don't know if he was taking notes um, or writing it down like that night, but these these quotes uh, throughout the rest of the book are all so personal and, and so evocative. I think uh, that he, I'm not 100% sure whether he did it for all the, Champions, but I think that at some point he started carrying uh, a recorder uh, with him and recording these conversations. I do recall. I do recall. Uh, I have read in one of his books that uh, one of the of, of the persons he writes about at some point asked him, "Oh, are you going to write a book about me?" Yeah, yeah. Because he saw this recorder, so I think that it's all word to word, and that I think he was typing the quotes as he was hearing them, and then. We really get the feeling that the person was saying. Yeah, I can't remember if it was Bronstein or Korchenoy, but I remember that as well. They're saying, "Are you going to put that in the book?" <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I'm not. I'm not even sure either. But I know it. It, it was a thing. Yeah. Yeah, and but I understand why. Um, so Smyslov, you had a few um, quibbles about it. To to be fair, so I mean, he was a unique personality. Could you tell us? Um, so first of all, he was the seventh world champion. Um, what what else do we need to know more generally about Smyslov, Vieko? Uh, well, he was known for his harmonious, very positional style, I would say, and he was uh, he played three matches uh, against Botvinnik in in the fifties. And he was uh, known to be like a chess evergreen because he was one of the rare persons who kept playing at a very high level at a very advanced age. So if I'm not mistaken, he played the World Championship Candidates Final in 1983, which was uh, 26 years after he won the World Championship crown, which is a respectable feat. Yeah. And then he he held many records for uh, the biggest age gap. I don't know, he played some... No, Clash of Generations matches in the 90s. So he, he was really, really active 
well into his old age, I would say. Yeah, Smyslov and Korchnoi, the, the consummate adult improvers, or at least not not <laughs> not get worsers. <laughs> yeah, 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 of course. Uh, and I mean, I, I don't know. So this was my impression of Smyslov before I, I wrote, I read this book and oh, the other book. So you, I always kind of had, had the feeling that he was sort of a good guy of Soviet chess. So the least controversial figure in comparison to other players, uh, not very combative, not, you know, very um, success, susceptible to mischiefs and, you know, uh, egoistic, so to speak. But this chapter kind of provided me with some glimpses that it may not all be true. Uh, that he was also very pragmatic and careful about uh, what he would say in public. So it has to be said that throughout throughout this book and throughout other Sosonko's books, you know, you can always feel this invisible hand of the authorities uh, reigning of the players' hands, uh, because um, being a Soviet grandmaster in that time was a privilege that came with the possibilities to travel abroad and to experience life fully. But one wrong action could result in those privileges being revoked. And everybody was very, very careful and and uh, vigilant not to lose those privileges and smithwell was not an exception actually yeah i mean it's 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 not always dominating the sort of narrative of what he's writing about but it's always there and like for you know spoiled modern um democracy residents like ourselves it's easy to lose sight of but i mean he talks about like giving both smithlov and tal the gulag archipelago uh the famous uh anti-soviet book by Solzhenitsyn when it came out and you know stuff like that really puts things in historical context because uh, you know a book like that is is still considered you know a, a classic today and you can just imagine Sasanko like you know holding this book like a treasure and smuggling it to these these champions when they when they leave the country um, and he said that he was always giving books to you know the people that he mentions um, th- throughout the the champions we'll be discussing the rest of the podcast yeah, which also gives you an insight of like of the era. Like, can you imagine not being able to buy certain books because they are banned? Uh, yeah, and part of my love for Sosanko is is just I just have so much respect for him having the courage to leave everything he knew and to feel like he had. And this probably comes through when I interview people um, who've who've emigrated to different places, chess players. I mean, just. To, to feel so strongly about needing uh, different circumstances, whether it be politically, economically, or just personally motivated to strike out somewhere brand new. I mean, I just have so much respect for that. Um, and in that case in particular, because there was, um, it, it was um, such an act of bravery. Yeah. Yeah. I think that in one of the books, I think in the book, now we are maybe slightly off the tangent, but uh, in one of the books about Korchno, I believe, because where he describes how Korchny emigrated. He also went on to describe how he emigrated. And there's a story that he was that he had to report to the local chess club or the place where he worked beforehand. Uh, uh, you know that he is going to leave, or or that he. Uh, I think that he even announced that he was going to leave. And then there was this whole committee of people, you know, b- basically bashing him and say calling him traitor or, or or close to that. And then he had to endure it with a smiley face because if any one of them uh, uh, provided a, f- a formal complaint, then he would be banned from going abroad and everything would be in vain. So it was like that serious, you know, and. The, one of the, one, another reason why everybody was so careful not to say anything to upset the authorities, apart from Botvinnik, but we would get to that later. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, and just to, to bring it back to Smyslov and just add a little more color, I mean, Smyslov, f- famous for 
um, in addition to being an amazing chess player, having a great singing voice and loving to sing, Sasanko says, you didn't have to ask him twice to sing. Um, he describes uh, obsession at different times. He was the kind of person, which I think is not uncommon in the chess world, where in addition to getting obsessed with chess, you might become obsessed with another topic. So he mentions that Smyslov had like a period where he was reading all about UFOs and talking about UFOs constantly. The same with um, what happens after you die. Um, so just very, uh, he paints a, a portrait of a pretty interesting character, even away from the chessboard. Yeah, and, and somewhat naughty to an extent, uh, because it was not only yeah, yeah. about U UFO he believed in afterlife and all sorts of mysteries, uh, aliens, uh, and, yeah. and, other, and other conspiracy stuff, yeah. And uh, as for singing, it has to be said that he considered to, at some point even to go professional and that he did sing in the Bolshoi Theater, which is, I think, a famous, famous venue in in Russia, yeah, you know, in St. Petersburg. So he was a, he was no slouch, definitely. Although it's not uncommon for chess players to have a huge talent in music as well, right? Although singing, it doesn't, you know, that's um, I feel like playing an instrument. There's, you know, if you have the pattern recognition, you have the pattern recognition. But singing, you actually need a good voice too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I agree. It's um, a bit more difficult. So I, I've got one more quote I'd like to read. Um, this is from um his his later years um so smyslov lived to be 89 and towards the end i believe he said to jenna he said one day he said you know jenna when i became world champion i got the feeling that the whole world had risen up against me this didn't help me to have a peaceful life or a relaxed mindset perhaps that's why i lost the return match with botvinik and not only because i was seriously ill during the match or perhaps i felt the internal discomfort because i was ill do i regret anything yes i do Profound. Yeah, I mean, it's quotes like that that you just you can't really get. I mean, if they didn't write a memoir, you just you can't really get stuff like that from from many other sources. So, I mean, that really um, really gives you a sense of uh, of uniqueness. Some, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, do you have I, anything else on Smyslov? Oh, I, I, if I can just one brief quote, I can include sure. one brief quote. So, I, I liked his view on the computer engines. So I have a quote oh. that states that computers have come into chess for good and have brought a lot of analytical clarity to it, but they've also destroyed the spirit of the game, the clash of personalities. Yeah, yeah, I, I had highlighted that quote too. Um, yeah, it's um, an evergreen quote, you know? People, yeah, yeah. people might agree with it or they might not, but they've been saying it since Smyslove, so it yeah, obviously uh, holds true for some people. But I have to say, he obviously ne never made a Twitter account, else he would have not said that that chess locks personalities. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and he didn't meet Alpha Zero, you know, I mean... <laughs> yeah, 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 that's also true. <laughs> the the chess computers have taken an interesting turn of late, although some might <laughs> might still make the same arguments. But um, but yeah, that's, that, I'm glad that you brought that up. Um, so who was next, Vieco, for you? Well... How do you want to do? Do I need to go down my list, or do you want to say who was your your third? It'll get too confusing if we go to mine. So just uh, okay, go to your okay, fourth, okay. and then I'll. Okay, so my next one was uh, Oive or Eve or whatever he's pronounced. I'm horrible with Dutch names. Ah, uh, yeah, I'm obviously not the person to ask. Although I did, <laughs> I did find one on online source who suggested Uve. Although uh, Uve. I'm, I'm sure they're Dutch. Any Dutch listener is cringing right now. But uh, yeah. but but anyway. Fifth world champion, Dutch hero, 
later FIDE president. I sort of, my impression of him from reading about him has been, he always seems like the sanest world champion to me. <laughs> like there, you don't read anything crazy about him. I mean, I guess you could maybe make that argument for someone like Spassky as well, but he just kind of seemed to to have his, his shit together. And um, yeah, I mean, obviously, even if he's not considered one of the best players of all time, obviously an incredible player. Um, what were you going to say, Vico? Yeah, I just want to say he was very, very correct and very principled, you know, very scientific and, uh, you know, very, very stubborn. And, you know, he had a certain sense of justice, which is not very common for, for chess players, I would say, or world champions. Yeah, and there was one quote from Sosanko that maybe possibly framed my um, my impression of, of Uwe, although, again, I had that impression even with, uh, before having read this book. Um, here's a quote about Uwe. He says, the idea of spending forever demonstrating his chest superiority and pushing all other aspects of life into the background was completely uninviting to him. He had none of the qualities or perhaps shortcomings necessary for a lengthy reign as world champion. Among the geniuses and philosophers, fanatics and supermen that can be easily dis- easily excuse me that can be distinguished easily among the world champions, Max Uve stands out for his humility, his ordinariness. He leaves one with the impression that what he did could have been done by almost anyone. So, very poetic quote, and of course, um, it was kind of a shock when when he won the world championship. So. Um, it could be, I mean, it really, he wasn't considered like even the number two player in the world when he won um, was was quite unexpected. And uh, he himself, as Sasanko alludes to, didn't seem like he expected to win that match. Yeah, so it was, I think, so we are referring to the 1935 World Championship match where, uh, how did you say, Uwe? Uwe. Uwe. Uwe, Uwe beat Alekain. And it was like the, maybe the biggest surprise in chess and still is today, I would say, because nobody expected him to win. Uh, and, but I think that, it, you know, it also has something to do with him being the underdog. And uh, I think with Alec, Alekhine actually underestimating him. Uh, yeah. There, there is even a quote uh, in this chapter where, uh, taken from uh, Alekhine's own writings, that, uh, he says that if our contest should, should end in victory for him, it would only show that at that point I was not on top uh, of my game. So much the worse for me. Yeah. And of course, Vyako mentioned earlier that he, uh, Sosanko mentions Alyekin's um, drinking issues. And uh, he quotes Uwe speculating that he may have been drunk at the board for a few games in particular within this match. So uh, no one knows for sure, but certainly Alyekin did not did not bring his A game. <laughs> yeah. and it's all, But it's also interesting to discuss uh, like the return match because two years after uh, Uwe was the one who was considered the favorite, and then he lost that match. And that may have something to do with the fact uh, that, as you said, that he didn't didn't have this killer instinct and utter willingness to devote his life to chess. Uh, because there is also a quote that says that the main reason for uh, Uwe's loss of the second match was probably his attitude. Well, I've got the World Championship's title. I fulfilled the hopes of those who believed in me and helped me. Yeah. Um... Yeah, I have a few more quotes I'd like to share about Uwe. Um, there were some really good ones. So one of them is just Sasanko talking about sort of the impact he had in his life. So he says, in the summer of 1972, I departed the Soviet Union, my luggage consisting entirely of a strong desire to leave the country, a rather sketchy impression of the world that lay beyond its borders and a suitcase full of books. 
According to the rules, I was allowed to carry out only books printed in the country after 1945. Books printed before that date required special permission. Overcoming the obstacles thrown up by the bureaucracy, I obtained the desired stamp from the Ministry of Culture, permission to remove from the USSR for a book printed in 1936. This was a chess book. I had used it more than once to give children lessons in the Leningrad Palace of Pioneers, where I'd worked as a trainer. To this day, I consider it one of the best chess books ever. I still have it. The title reads Max Uwe, Chess Lessons. Little could I imagine then that within a few months of my leaving, I would be speaking to the author, meeting him frequently, and even playing him in a short match. Yeah, that's an amazing quote. Yeah, and this one in particular, I mean, it shows that he was just a daily force in his life. I mean, uh, Sasanko ended up living, I mean, I believe he still does, lives in Amsterdam, um, and Uwe would often be in in his office, and Sasanko would just stop in and see him frequently. So it really is amazing, I mean, to imagine reading a book like that growing up and feeling like you're just on, I mean, in the Soviet Union as compared to the Netherlands was like being in a different planet. And then you end up just spending so much time and playing with uh, this this legend of the chessboard. Yeah, I think that, that uh, he definitely played a big role in, in Sasanko's life, but also in Korchnoi's life a few years later. Because I think it's not coincidence that Korchnoi emigrated to Netherlands. Yeah, he he Sasanko mentions that he had had conversations with Korchnoi and that Korchnoi um then he he helped uh, facilitate conversations with between Uwe and Korchnoi because Korchnoi was in the middle of the candidate cycle and was considering emigrating. But one of the many concerns that he had was would he be able to retain whatever place he had in the candidate cycle if he was switching countries in the middle of it. And Uwe, as um, Sasanko tells it, was extremely helpful with that and assured him that, that there wouldn't be any issues. Yeah, so it has to be um, perhaps emphasized that after his career, he became the FIDE, FIDE president. And that's why he had this authority to, to deal with with such a decisions. And actually, you have to admire uh, Uwe, uh, how he, because you can imagine the pressure he faced from from the Soviets at, at, at that time, at the height of the Cold War, and he insisted uh, in defending Korchnoi's rights and allowing him to play in the candidates. I think it really angered the Soviets. Although Sonko does mention that, uh, with, in retrospective, uh, even I think Yuri Averbach mentioned that Uwe was the best FIDE uh, president right, yeah. ever. Yeah, which... Um, yeah, I mean, just to be mentioned in that obviously means that uh, he, you know didn't mess anything up too badly, which is basically uh, the, the standard by which we judge these things. Um, so anything else on Uwe before we keep it moving, Vieco? Well, I, 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 if I may, may, may I complain about him as well? Or, or yeah, yeah, it, yeah. Okay. So, I mean, one, one thing that really surprised me uh, about him or, or that was really profound to me was that uh, even though it was mentioned that he didn't want to devote, devote his life to chess, he basically devoted his life to work. So there are many passages in the book where uh, he, uh, Sonko writes how Uwe, you know, he couldn't stop working at any moment. He was working on trains, he was working at home, and he had this very strict routine. And from all these passages, not to quote them all now, I kind of get the feeling that he didn't really know how to enjoy life, that, that he maybe worked, used his work to escape from from something or, or someone. And I mean, I can maybe relate to that because I have the same tendencies. But there's, <laughs> there, there's like this passage where he he talks about, uh, uh, he writes how uh, he never, even though he loved music, he never visited the concerts and music was something uh, 
of, of lesser importance than his work. So I don't know. That was just uh, profound to me, and I kind of felt that this, this was not the best, at least for me. It's not the most healthy life policy, but okay. Are you just throwing that in to impress our uh, Chessable employed listeners since you're doing some work for Chessable, Vieco? Well, considering <laughs> that half of the Chessable is Dutch and I just butchered the, the Dutch name, <laughs> I, I think that that uh, ship has long sailed. But okay, well, maybe I, I can score some bonus points. <laughs> oh, I mean, if, uh, if the Dutch weren't understanding about, if they were judgmental about mispronunciations, they would have stopped coming on my show long ago. So... I think you're okay in that regard. But um, just as a brief aside, just because I meant to ask you this personally, are, so are you working full-time for Chessable now, Vieco, or Well, not yet. I'm actually in the middle of transitioning. Uh, okay. Them. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of part-time, but actually just in the process of trying to figure everything out and quit my job to join their full-time. Excellent. It's awesome to see them hiring so many chess players in addition to their full-time employees people like todd bryan and mike zelazny also getting work shout out to uh those friends of the pod but let's bring it back to to the book review yeah, yeah, um, yeah. so uh who's next on my list it's uh, your guy that's way 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 down on your list that that's michael botvinik well to be fair i had numbers as we've said numbers three through six very close together so um but i did enjoy the botvinik chapter what what, what did you think about it Vieco? Yeah, I think I, I think it was fascinating because uh, I I was really like I had a very negative opinion on Botvinnik in general. I recently read uh, the book uh, uh, translated by Douglas Griffin, I believe, Levin Fish, the Soviet Outcast. So Levin Fish was a older generation of player preceding Botvinnik, who who kind of you know in in his in his later life he got let's say blocked. Botvinnik and Botvinnik really benefited from the Soviet system in his early early career. You know, he had and he enjoyed a lot of privileges of the champion, and I kind of wasn't very fond uh, of him previously. But after reading Sosonko's accounts on him, I kind of changed my mind and realized that nothing in his life is black and white, and that he was a very very complex and uh, and you know double-edged character, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, I think in those Soviet times, I mean, it must have been it especially hard for anyone to just be one thing because you have to have a certain, I mean, unless you're just like um, outright anti-government, you have to maintain certain appearances. So it really takes a personal recollection like this to know where someone really stands. And, you know, uh, often um, we we make sacrifices for our careers that may not necessarily um, jibe with our personal views. So Botvinnik certainly isn't the only person to have faced issues like that and obviously face them on a bigger scale than a lot of us do. Um, just to give a little more sort of background info on Botvinnik, uh, sixth world champion, he was also a practicing electrical engineer and computer scientist, and we'll probably talk a little bit more about his interest in uh, chess and computers in uh, a little bit later. Um, but yeah, this one I didn't feel like was as personal as some of the other chapters. Yeah, maybe because Sosonko I, I didn't, I think he didn't quite know Botvinnik as much as some other players. And on the other hand, it's also debatable whether it was possible to be too personal with Botvinnik anyway, uh, since he was kind of, you know, closed and very, very strict uh, character, I would say. Um, harder to breach and to be forced to talk as openly as maybe some other other players. That's at least my impression, which may be wrong. Yeah, that's mine as well. I mean, 
and I didn't I didn't have as many quotes highlighted about Botvinnik as compared to some of the others. I mean, he he as you mentioned, he he did he was complex in the sense that he generally was uh, trying to advance his career uh, at whatever cost. But he also tells the story of him refusing. I mean, a well-known story of refusing to sign a letter or attacking Korchnoi for defecting and said uh, it, it wasn't a habit of mine to sign letters that expressed other people's thoughts. Um, he, he tells the story of, um, so Sasanko, of course, uh, was persona non grata, which was the name of the Korchnoi book that we were trying to remember earlier, right? Yeah. Uh, it just occurred to me as saying it, but Sasanko also was persona non grata in the Soviet Union uh, after defecting. And he also tells the story of them discussing it like uh, Bafinik was giving a talk at a chess club and um, w- someone asked about a game that Sasanko had recently played. And of course the person that asked tried to sort of dance around saying his name because um, he was so, um, so uh, vilified in the Soviet union that they wouldn't want to say his name, but Bavinik said his name and said, he's not going to, he's not going to pretend like he doesn't know who it is or dance around who his name was. So yeah, I think the exact, the exact quote quote was, do you think I'm afraid to say the name Sasanko? Very good. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that's—I mean—that's—that's uh, that's the reason. These these types of stories are the reason why I really like this chapter. Uh, I mean, I, I'm in general fond of this, uh, let's say, you know, political slash uh, historical conversations or moments or events. And stories like this completely changed my opinion about Botvinnik because uh, even though in in his early days he he was like kind of the the, the the model Soviet citizen in the in the later years, I imagine he did a lot to to anger the Soviet authorities by doing stuff like this. And I think that there is even a quote in the book that says that uh, KGB had a quite big file on the Botvinnik case. And actually, I think in the in the later stage of his life, he was forbidden from traveling abroad, which was you know always a uh, you know <laughs> uh, let's say measure how 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 friendly with the authorities you are or not. So I wasn't expecting that he, that he would be so so rebellious later in, in age. I, I wasn't familiar with that aspect. And that was fascinating to me. Yeah, and it looks like you've got an, a couple more notes here on Botvinnik, Vieco. So if you don't mind, I just, uh, is there is there anything else? I feel like we should give give a little more shine to uh, to this legendary player. Yeah, I, I generally have a lot of these stories where he defies the authorities. But maybe the be- the, the the quote that is uh, most vivid is that actually talks about Botvinnik's character. Uh, so can I read it or do you want to have the, the uh, No, go ahead. Go okay. for it. So Botvinnik had a complex character. He could be harsh, he could be arrogant, he could be cold, but he could also be a loyal friend. He never compromised his principles or backed down on his beliefs. There are many stories about his idiosyncratic behavior. Once he refused to play in an international tournament, announcing that he hadn't received an official invitation. When a functionary from the Soviet Chess Federation tried to dispute this, saying that he had sent an invitation to Botvinnik as he had to all the other grandmasters, a brief retort followed. I am not all of them. I am Botvinnik. Yeah, that, uh, there's a lot in there. <laughs> I don't... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that, that this captures his, who he was most vividly and most precisely. Yeah. And of course, for listeners interested in the chess, obviously, uh, well worth um, a, a deep dive into Botvinnik's um, games. But um, in terms of uh, the person, I mean, maybe it's because he was complex. That I mean, of course, everyone's complex. But I didn't. I still. I don't know. I just. I felt like I. 
I don't have a clear picture. Like you read the Tal chapter and it's like you feel Tal, you know, you 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 know what he's like. Maybe that's just because he's so much larger than life, but I didn't necessarily feel that way about Bob Finnick. Yeah, yeah, I, I don't, I don't dispute that that fact that that it was there was very little personal, but for some reason it didn't bother me because these sorts of stories and uh, were sufficient to keep my interest in, in this chapter, in particular. Yeah, uh, yeah. And then to wrap it up uh, on Bobinik, I mean, then in the he talks about in his later years how he was just obsessed with chess computers, and unfortunately, I don't think I. I had the quote, I don't know if you did, but he had one where he talked about how he didn't feel like, and of course, obviously he knew the field of computers more so than most. He didn't feel like computers were necessarily just going to be playing by rote, sort of uh, foreseeing uh, the way that engines are able to play now, that that he thought that they really might someday have a creative chess style. Um, and he certainly saw coming more than others, um, the the potential that computers had in chess. Yeah, I don't have the exact quote, but I do recall mentioning that he, uh, the Sasonko mentioning that he didn't believe in this sort of brute force approach, and that he was, I'm not sure if he kind of hinted at neural networks or, or something like that, but he definitely kind of envisioned that Alpha Zero will appear one day. So you could say that he was ahead of his time in that regard. With with but two world champions left, left to discuss, next up is uh, Tigran Petrosian, of course, uh, born in Georgia to Armenian parents, um, became world champion in 1963, was it, Vieco? I think so, yes, 1963, and defended his title in 1966 against Pasqui. Yeah, and of course, um, legendary, as especially as a defensive player, just known for... for um, squeezing people and for for playing just just incredible at never giving an inch um, and underrated possibly as a chess player. I mean, a lot of people have them in the, in their top ten chess players of all time. And an interesting character on top of that, um, especially um, as it relates to uh, his biography and uh, the what what he overcame to become a champion. Yeah, unfortunately, the fact that he's uh, underestimated has something to do, or I think a lot to do with his style. Because uh, whenever you, you bring up discussion about the greatest player ever, somebody will always throw Tao in, even though Peterson's achievements were maybe, or he did reign longer as a world champion, among other things. But he, his style was, he has a reputation of being very solid and uh, prophylactic. Although I'm not sure that is, uh, that is necessarily the most accurate assessment of his style. I think that uh, Spassky, after their 1966 match, which was like, uh, Peterson was actually outplaying him tactically. And Spassky, I think, said that he regarded him first and foremost as stupendous tac tactician, which is an interesting observation, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, and also I think Sasanko's talked somewhere in the book about his ability to to see tactics when his opponents were threatening them, you know? So yeah. it's like, it's there, the tactical vision is there within him, but for some reason he was better known at, at preventing his opponent's tactics than in, in having them himself. And, but and actually, if, if I may interject, I think that uh, it, it's interesting because Sasonko connects his style with um, his conditions and with uh, uh, you know his environment in which he was growing up. So his parents died when he was very, very young. I'm not sure about the exact age, but uh, I think he was still in school. And uh, so both his parents died and he started, he, I think he grew up in poverty and he worked as a street sweeper in his very young age. 
so and then he he worked during the day and in the evening he would go and play chess. So can you imagine like some child prodigy today sweeping the streets in the morning and then playing chess in the evening and becoming a world champion? Yeah, it, it's hard to imagine. I mean, and he describes feelings of embarrassment at being a street sweeper, how he didn't mind it when there weren't a lot of people around, but around the time like schools let out and businesses were letting out, he would feel a sense of embarrassment that he was doing that. So um, yeah, it's really poetic the way Sasanko sort of ties that um, that sense of insecurity to to the defense first style of his chess play. Yeah, and it also tells you about the level of competition and you know the conditions in the Soviet era and how many strong players there were. Because there's a story about uh, Peterson's childhood friend, uh, the Georgian master Tengiz Gorgatse, who said that uh, already in his youth, Tigran uh, always would count how many points he needed before every tournament so that he would you know either qualify for the next stage or win a prize. And there's even a very nice story somewhere uh, how Peterson said that, uh, you know, after a, a win, you should always make a draw, you know, to rest on your rowers and to recuperate your strength. And then somebody who was listening to that conversation said, but hey, Tigran, I think it was Kotov said, but hey, Tigran, you even make a draw after a draw. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. And he's got some really uh, good quotes. I mean, uh, more so than his other players, he talks about his um, his playing style, which again, also I think, I think with Tal, like the the people that he knew the best, he was sort of the most expansive about. So here's one quote. Um, there's a few that I'd like to share, but one is: "Burrow beneath your enemy, undermine his power from within, destroy his economy, his morale, feed him false information, try to crush him." And if possible, don't come out into the open battle. Sun Tzu wrote 2,500 years ago. That was Petrosian style. Safety first was written on his army's standards. And then he goes on to say things like he instantly grasped the essence of a position, found the main melody in it. That's why he was such a great blitz player. There was no time in it for doubt or soul searching. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think that there is there is some quote that not not directly correlated to the book that says, where Peterson said that uh, when the, the, there were discussions about Karpov Kasparov being an unlimited match or maybe Fischer Karpov he said that it is a nonsense because some twenty years ago you would have to play four months before you would win six games against him or something like that so so yeah he was really really very cautious and you could sense dangers two steps away as as. Yeah, and it sort of um, carried over to his approach, his professional approach to chess. Um, he took it took it very seriously. Um, there are no reports of him not reading chess books. And uh, in the six years that he was the world champion, he said he had no alcohol or cigarettes. Obviously, that can be uh, contrasted with what Sasanko writes about Tal. Um, so just uh, really appreciated, again, with, with where he came from, really appreciated the, the life that he was able to, to lead as he ascended to, uh, to the, the, the greatest title. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I, mean, he, this, I think he was very pragmatic and, you know, adept at navigating the Soviet hierarchy and, and society, even more so than, let's say, Botvinnik or Smyslov, in particular Smyslov. So he was just uh, always, you know, calculating, always considering uh, the danger two steps in ahead, not only in chess, but also in, in life. Because I think that Sasonko writes that when he was with Petrosian, he felt this much more sharply that uh, he's talking as an immigrant, as an immigrant, that he's talking to a Soviet player. So, 
Yeah. Although, again, to show that there's contrast with everyone, he does. Sasanko also tells the story of um, by the time the Fisher Spassky match came around, uh, Petrosian was rooting for Spassky. I mean, rooting for Fisher, um, which Sasanko says um, because he felt like uh, in order for Soviet players to be treated uh, relatively equally, <laughs> Spassky needed to be taken down a peg, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think he was like uh, he lived the philosophy of uh, my my enemy's uh, misery. Enemy, yeah. my, my my enemy's misery is my luck. Or I I I wanted to translate it from Croatian, but I failed. My but, yeah, my enemy's enemy is my friend. Is, yeah, yeah. That's um, another version of it. Yeah. Yeah. So and he talks about uh, his influential wife Rona, who planned everything and um he was the one who uh was also interested in geller the wife was also interested in geller is that right am i yeah i think there's there's like uh there's there's a passage where they where sonko writes that she basically had to choose between uh, the two and she chose petrosian yeah she said whoever wins this tournament <laughs> yeah 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 something like yeah. that yeah yeah yeah, she um, was pragmatic, also pragmatic. I also liked there's a very funny quote about her. Because, uh, so there is at some point uh, Peterson managed to uh, get to substitute his small 30 square meter room for a fancy apartment. And then <laughs> once again, Kotov, for some reason, uh, his name keeps appearing, said that Peterson knows how to exchange bishops for knights, but his wife exchanges everything else. <laughs> <laughs> Good line. <laughs> Um, and of course, he says when he came to Erevan, it was a national event. I mean, uh, the the chess history of Armenia is, um, you know, uh, well known, and he's obviously one of the um, the the most famous of uh, the champions. Um, so it was really surprising to read the kind of reception he received. Uh, like he was a, na- a national holiday, almost of a sort. He was like a real celebrity back in the day. Yeah, and of course, Tal is described in uh, in similar ways. And because we're uh, not unexpectedly, being that we both love all of uh, Sosanko's quotes, being that that we're we're running a bit long, I feel like maybe we should move on to Tal. Do you, is there anything else we should add about Petrosian before we do so? But just one small quote. I'm sorry, I keep waiting. Oh no! This. Yeah, but no uh, need to apologize. Yeah, he said that um, there is one part where he talks about the match of Botvinnik, and he basically said that uh, three weeks before the match, he uh, Peterson went skiing and didn't look at chess at all, and it was like really amazing to me to listen to that because can you imagine? not looking at chess for three weeks before a world championship match today, like the whole theory of one variation would change in that period. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. Just, just crazy to think about, although certainly things weren't moving as fast then, but still, I mean, you know, someone like Magnus, I mean, he is well known for, for taking his breaks to play sports and stuff, but it's hard to imagine him, him just relaxing three weeks before a world champion, yeah. three weeks straight. Yeah, although, Ma- Ma- although Magnus, if you want to make a three-week break before a next World Championship match and are looking for an opening, there's a good modern defense course out there. <laughs> <laughs> um, he probably, uh, you know, Magnus probably has the whole chessable catalog at his fingertips. So I'm sure, I'm sure he's already studied it, Vieco. Yeah, yeah, of course. That was the first thing he he considered. <laughs> Uh-huh. Okay, and last but not least, we we arrive at the main event. I mean, I don't know how really what I would like to do, Vieco, for Mikhail Tal, and of course, I also mentioned uh, Sasanko's memorable writing when um 
when Sam Copeland and I discussed the life and games of Mikhail Tall. But what I'd like to do is just read the whole chapter. <laughs> but, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, it's the longest chapter by far, and you know, we're yeah, I, mean, I, I, I mean, it is not coincidence that Tao is. Uh, on the on the front page of the book, if I'm not mistaken, and that also that in the Amazon description of the book, his name is the first to pop up. So. Yeah, yeah, and you know it's interesting that we we talked about how the early chapters sort of felt like filler. I wonder if he considered the approach of instead of doing the world champions I knew, doing another sort of monography of Tall, because I feel like there might have been even more there that he could have shared about Tall and expanded that into a book instead of. Um, you know, uh, adding a few more world champions who we didn't really know. Yeah, well, you we have to invite him to uh, to the podcast once again and ask him to explain himself. <laughs> There's no other way we will ever find out, I guess. Yeah, well, Jenna, you're you're always welcome. So <laughs> uh, he's he's got my email address. I mean, it would be amazing to talk to him again. I do feel like um, I found his interview to be to be incredibly insightful, and I thought that his English was great. But I think it it it. He was tired by the end of the interview, but uh, I mean, certainly I would love to, to get to pick his brain and hear some stories again if uh, an opportunity ever presented itself. Sure, it was one of my favorite um, episodes as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just just a dream. Um, so, so much we could say about what he shares about Tal. Um, I mean, he talks a lot about his personality. He's got a lot of great quotes from Jan Timmen. I mean, I selected like 20 quotes, which is obviously too many to read them all, but I'll start with a couple of the shorter ones. I mean, um, a genius of imp improvisation who loved the playing process most of all in chess. Um, what else could we say about what his discussion of uh, Mikhail Tal? Well, I I'd like to build up on this, uh, like, playing or his love for the game i think that you know there, there's a lot we will we, we will talk about how his personality his character traits his uh, addiction problems but i think at the core of of, of it all there was always chess like uh, it chess was what he lived and what he breathed and all the other sides things were side effects that was my impression uh, because there's this story where he is basically on on his deathbed in a hospital and then he goes to play a blitz tournament and beats Kasparov and takes up third place among many grandmasters. So that's like the Tao at its core, in, in my opinion. Yeah, it's true. And, you know, lived a shorter life than a lot of world champions, which um, I think we'll, we'll be sharing some quotes about. The the eighth world champion, by the way, of course, uh, from Latvia and well known for his uh, incredible tactical, sacrificial, and sort of psychological style. I mean, he just... He just brought the fire and similar to what Sasanko was saying about Petrosian and that they sort of lived in the way that they played, Tal was the same way. Um, you know, smoking, drinking, not sleeping, just a sheer uh, um, life force that is what makes it so fun to read about. Yeah, he was like, as they say, the candle that burnt on both sides. I, I think that that was Kasparov's description and, and that, that can be really felt in this chapter. Yeah, and here's um, so yeah, I, so I, I, I don't know where to start as well. <laughs> yeah, and then the quotes are so long because even when I was selecting them, it's like, oh, I don't want to leave out that part. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, okay, but here's one that sort of sets the scene. So he says, in the spring of 1968, I came to Riga for the first time and spent a whole month with him. We worked on the opening, of course, but it wasn't opening knowledge that was the foundation of successes. It wasn't about the opening, and it's no accident that there's no tall system and no variation named after him in chess. So it was really just about the creativity and and the pressure. 
um, that he put on people. Um, another quote, danger is risky for others, but not for me. This is from Tal. And if my attacks aren't com completely determined by the requirements of the position, so much the worse for those requirements. This was written on his coat of arms. His combinations were so natural that it seemed they flowed out of him out of their own accord and didn't take any work. Um, and then he says, these suggestive lines weren't taken from a characterization of Ta's work. They're from early 19th century reviews of the poems of the young Pushkin. So again, yeah. um, brings in all these um, outside forces to poetically describe these chess players. And then he says, um, into the stagnant bog of long maneuvering leapt a young man who voluntarily doubled his pawns on the fifth move so as to open it lines for an attack. When the young count from the fairy tale by the brothers Grimm had to sing a mass that he didn't know a single word of, two, do two doves sat on his shoulders and told him the right words. When Tal played Botvinnik, there was still a lot that he didn't know about chess, but somehow he played the right moves. Yeah, or the most most problematic moves for Botvinnik. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, more to the point. Yeah, although I, I was, I, I mean, there, there is a common impression that he was sort of a gambler, I, I would say, like uh, almost in his youth. But I, I, there is a quote somewhere that he says that uh, that he actually spent a lot of time in his youth analyzing the game and that he like studied all the classics. He was basically nonstop working on his chess before rising to fame. So going back to the Capablanca chapter, all these stories of natural born genius, I kind of highly doubt them because I think that at some point you had to put some time into the game. And Tal was no exception. Yeah. Yeah, with Tal, he describes him staying up for days at a time. Like, I mean, uh, uh, eventually he would become known for other kinds of benders. But, I mean, he had that sort of uh, addictive personality where when in his younger years, before he could get himself into trouble, it was uh, chess, chess benders keeping him up. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But then, I mean, this book, I think, was was kind of notable because, I mean, there's a lot of sort, sort of vivid personal recollections. But Sasanko, as far as I know, I mean, the... Um, Tal's issues with alcohol were, were well, well chronicled. I mean, Sasanko talks about how during certain Olympiads, you would just see him at the bar constantly. Um, and, but so anyone who's, you know, at that tournament is, you know, his reputation is going to be well known, but I believe that his, his issues with morphine addiction were not as well known until Sasanko brought them to light. Yeah. Although when we are at it, there's like a very memorable quote uh, or that probably displays Tao's jovial attitude, even when facing very dark con consequences, there is this story that uh, at some, there were rumors about him being addicted to morphine, and at some moments, uh, one of the somebody from the newspapers asked him, "Hey, Tao, it, is it true that you are a morphinist?" And then he immediately said, "No, I'm a chigorinist." It's <laughs> pretty funny, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, even 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 when faced with serious issues, he would retort to this. Sort of, uh, which is kind of symptomatic because you kind of throughout the chapter you always get the feeling that he was sort of a big child, uh, you know, using these jokes to avoid responsibility, even when appropriate or, or maybe when not. So yeah, 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 and he described his very sort of bohemian lifestyle in Moscow, especially after he won the world championship. Um, I I think um I've mentioned before the the quote that Sasanko writes somewhere about if if only in between. Uh, world championship matches he could have been kept under lock and key then you know he might have been able to defend his title but yeah, yeah was, I, I, I have mean, that one as well and it was actually oh good Tal's mother actually said that which is kind of you get the feeling where he got his wit from right yeah yeah just, just amazingly complex character and 
Yeah, uh, he said his his life burnt. So of course, Tal died pretty young. He died at fifty five, um, playing chess right up until the end. Although he did start to have lots of quick draws, and uh, Sasanko alludes to sort of uh, the the hard living catching up with him towards the later years. Um, although he does mention that he still played a great game against Lautier in Barcelona, nineteen ninety two. But he says, Sasanko says, Tal's life had burned so intensely that one could confidently consider, confidently consider a month the equivalent of a year. Yeah, yeah. I think there's also a, a quote where where he, uh, so he was when he visited some tournament or something, he was commenting on some games, and he was like in his fifties, and Sasanko said that he looked much, much, much older than than he did, and then some fans recognized him, and they basically looked at him as as Taunton or Zuckertort, and and he wrote the the miracle wasn't so much that he was alive, but he hadn't died earlier. And replying to a greeting from an acquaintance, he said, "Thank you for what for recognizing me." Yeah, which was a tinge of sadness, of course, to that quote. But yeah, I mean, I mean that, that this is like typical emotional roller coaster you experience throughout this entire chapter, like uh, you know, feeling of sympathy and feeling of sadness at the same time. Uh, like if only it he didn't go. Or if he only he didn't do some of those things, he might have still lived or lived much longer. But yeah, then if he didn't do all this stuff, maybe he wouldn't be Tao in the first place. Yeah. And Sasanko's also got some great quotes from his Dutch compatriot, Jan Timmen, who, by the way, uh, have you read Timmen's Titans, um, Fiekwe? Uh, yeah, I have, I have just recently finished both this book and Kasparov versus Karpov. Okay. Uh, what, about matches. Yeah. what did you think of those books? Uh, well, I, I, I liked actually even Kasparov and Karpov more because uh, Timan provided more objective, I think, account than both of these two players. And I, I read a lot about this match, but actually there was a lot of things that were quite new to me in Timan's account. Uh, as a, and I mean, he, Timan's Titans are also excellent, but they, are, they somehow didn't stick uh, to me that, that much, even though once again, John Hartman was very, very, very... He put a lot of praise for that. Yeah, I love that book as well. I would, yeah. and the the reason I mention it is in in I'm about to read a quote from Jan Timmen, but it just made me think that anyone who ends up reading this book and likes it, if you haven't read Timmen's Titans, it's kind of similar. Um, of course, there's Yasser's uh, Chess Duels, which actually has games in it. I mean, uh, Timmen's book has chess in it as well, but sort of um, I, I love that general subgenre um, where uh, these people who knew these world champions tell what they knew. Um, but so and where, go ahead. And where is no where, where there is no pressure to solve some puzzles and improve your game. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> that make me feel bad. <laughs> oh, but that reminds me. I I have to get this in here, Vieco. In my um intrepid research for you, you have a twenty six hundred bullet rating because we're about the same fide rating. You're like twenty one eighty fide. Um, so but you're no not bullet blitz blitz. That's oh that's even more impressive. Yeah. How, what's your secret? Yeah. I have a I have a gaming mouse and I'm I'm fast. Okay, and and that's basically all. And I play the modern defense, which people underestimate, and then they're like, "What what the hell is this? Am I allowed to say shit?" Yeah, sure. There? <laughs> yeah, so they say, "What what the hell is this shit?" And then they you know they underestimate it, and then they start thinking about how to refute it, and then they they spend time and then I flag them. Okay, that's that's like ninety percent. Okay, but are you playing three minute yeah. or five minute? I'm mostly three minutes, okay. but I do play some ra- rapid and classical chess as well, and I have surprisingly decent ratings there. But uh, you know, battle with cheaters—that I mean—that's a separate topic. Right. But the amount that some uh, every I just played like one 
rapid game and one classical game like a week ago. And the first game I played after a long time was against Cheater, and then I gave it up again. Yeah. Until well, you got to give me some uh, blitz lessons, man, because I am nowhere near that rating, and it, it's I'm trying to work on my blitz now, but I'm not naturally fast anymore. Okay, you you want first lesson? Get divorced. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, hold on, hold on. I'm gonna go talk to my wife. No, okay, just kidding. All right, so let's bring it back to this Timmin quote. Um, thank you, listeners, who are still with us. Uh, so Jan Timmin says, he, of course, he played Tom many times, and then he says, having created pressure on the board, he radiated some kind of field around himself. He allowed he allowed himself a level of risk that exceeded all acceptable standards, especially at the beginning of his career. In his game with Keller, for example, from the Zurich 1959 tournament, he could have calmly played for a positional advantage in the opening and a significant one too. Instead of that, he undertook a peace sacrifice that seemed incorrect, but such incandescence was created on the board. At some point, all of White's pieces were hanging that his opponent couldn't withstand the tension. That was an unbelievable game. And to play like that, you have to have something like something that I can't express in words. Why, oh, why did he play that way? Yeah, that, that sounds like typical Tao. Yeah. I mean, it is, it, it is often said that he didn't calculate the variations, but that he rather saw through them, which is yeah. an amazing game. And I did call up that, that uh, Keller game and play through it. And it was the sort of game where you take one look at it, at least for me, and you're like, all right, well, if I don't spend five hours looking at this, I might as well not even look because I have no f- clue what's going on in this position. So, it, yeah, some, I, I wonder if some, hopefully some grandmaster probably has done a nice YouTube video explaining it. And I'll have to take a look for that. But, I mean, he's got so many games like that. So there is actually an interesting change uh, in his style as he kind of grew older. So. There is this famous uh, streak of undefeated games, uh, I think in the 70s or something. And I was surprised how once again Sosonko connected this change of style to the events happening off the board. Uh, because um, uh, uh, somewhere around that time, you know, the authorities started looking, uh, you know, wrongly about uh, Tao, you know, being drinking and you're not being model citizen. And at some point, he sold his soul, so to speak, and went on to work for for Karpov. And he became he was a member of Karpov's team. And Sosonko speculates that he kind of picked up parts of Karpov's pragmatic style along the way because uh, it was the most important thing for him was you know to live freely, to travel abroad, to enjoy life. And he he couldn't stay in Soviet Union for long. He, traveling to international competitions was like a must for him. So it was an interesting observation, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, and he's got so many little anecdotes. I mean, he obviously lived it up when he traveled. He he tells a story um, about uh, Steve Doyle, former USCF president, like going gambling with Tal in, in Atlantic City and Tal, <laughs> Tal just losing everything. He generally talks about him being hopeless with daily chores and with money. Um, his quote from GM Alexi Sweeten, uh, who says, like all, like all to whom fate is kind, Tal was subject to egocentrism. So, I mean, really just the world seems like it really literally revolved around him. Yeah, that's what actually his girlfriends uh, say. So there is a, there is a quote. Uh, okay, I'm just trying to find it. But basically that, uh, you know, every girlfriend uh, 
who was ever with him complained that uh, you know it was all about him that they need to sort everything for him do do this boring bureaucratic stuff and uh, i think uh, at some point boleslavski was asked before the match with botvinnik whether so Koblenz, Tal's second asked Boleslavski if he wants to become a coach, and Boleslavski said already back then that uh, Tal doesn't need a coach; he needs a nanny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, just amazing quote. Um, and he Sasanka with another sort of um, misdirection quote where he uh, he calls in something from another realm, another uh, Russian literature realm. In this case, he he quotes Tolstoy's wife saying. Uh, I, this is uh, the legendary author, Lev Tolstoy, of course. I lived with him for 48 years and never found out what type of person he was. And then Sasanko says, Misha was similar. Brilliant, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> brilliant, inexplicable, incredible, an angel and a demon simultaneously. Yeah, I mean, there's so much layers to his character. I mean, whether we are talking about the alcoholism uh, or, I mean, on the other side, we had this devil may care sort of bohemic lifestyle. On the, on the other hand, we had chess. On the third hand, we had a profound intellectual that read voraciously. The, the Sasanko writes that he the speed of Tal's reading was legendary, that he that he was able to read a book in one day. He also knew how to play the piano. So, so I mean, there's so much aspects about Tal that, that are revealed in this book that it, it, it's incredible. Yeah, and despite having three fingers, it should be said, was able to play the piano. Yeah, yeah. I, so, so he played, I think he played Chopin's Etids, which, okay, I'm not sure how familiar people are with pianos literature, but that's fairly, fairly advanced material, like very serious. It's not like some basic elementary stuff. It, it's really, really high level of piano playing. So Yeah. And I've only got, a, believe it or not, a couple more quotes, but one that I saw that we both had selected, Vieco, uh, again, reflecting on his later years. Um he says, when he was young, he'd managed to give to Bacchus what was Bacchus's and to Kaisa what was Kaisa's, and the gods of chess had closed their eyes to his mischief, but the 50-year-old Tal could no longer get away with it. And yeah, how good how yeah, good I your was... Greek mythology? Did you know who did you know what the Bacchus reference was, or how how were you able to deconstruct that one, Vieco? Uh, I I kind of knew that it's a god of wine. I I I have a neck for for okay. this. Okay, I just knew the word bacchanalia, like wild party, and then had to look it up from there. But I got the context right away. Yeah, I I'd recommend the Stephen Fry's Mythos to anybody interested into this. So this is a show, uh, uh, Greek mythology through fun stories, basically. So Stephen Fry, what's it called? Uh, Mythos. Okay. Yeah, sounds good to me. I I do love Greek mythology. I just um, I it's been a long time since I've read about it. So I need a refresher. Although, although I'm not, not now that from the top of my head, I'm not sure if Bacchus is Roman or Greek. Maybe it maybe it may be even Roman, but I, maybe I'm embarrassing myself. Okay. Oh. Yeah. Now we're getting way too far. Yeah. 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 I agree. Uh, it, it's all my fault. Um, yeah. So what, is there anything else we should add? I mean, I just feel like we could trade quotes for hours and um, you, you know, you just have to, the, the tall quote, the tall section itself is well worth the, 10 bucks on Kindle, and it's probably like 35, 40% of the book, right? I mean, it's much longer than the other chapters. Yeah, I, I think even around 40%. I, I was kind of keeping track on the Kindle. I think it's definitely a third or more. Yeah, uh, which is which is fantastic because <laughs> the whole thing is riveting. Yeah, and it's impossible to, to like convey it without reading it. We, we can just give a snippet. I think. Yeah. yeah. Um, so... 
anything else on top before we just kind of uh, wrap up our overall view? Yeah, perhaps we can wrap it up uh, with the final quote of the chapter, which says that uh, many people live a double and even a triple life, which is why it's hard to portray anyone in words to revive them on paper. It's a hopeless task, especially someone like Tao. Under this name, a very complicated conglomerate structure was concentrated in each facet of which there was so much of everything. Yeah, which is why he's endlessly fascinating. I mean, I, I so many chess books I want to talk about on this podcast, and I've already done one on Tal, and here we are talking about Tal again. That, yeah. that pretty much says it all. Although I think from a slightly different angle, because yeah, for sure, much darker one, I would say, which yeah. is also very fascinating. Yeah, I mean, it's you know, like like we've been talking about the contrast amongst all the players. It is darker, but you also feel the life force, you know. Um, so there, yeah. there there was a sadness in terms of um, his um, his addictions, um, but there's, I mean, it sounds like mostly he would be fun to hang out with. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so okay, so to summarize, so we're gonna let you go in a few minutes, Vieco. Um, but overall, is there anything to be said about the book that we haven't said, or just to sort of synthesize what we've already mentioned? Um, how many stars are you giving the world champions I knew? On 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 a scale to five or to ten? Let's say five. We'll keep it on the Amazon scale. I would say four. If you you like these books and you are into chess stories and chess histories, and if you are not, maybe three, then. Yeah. Although it's highly subjective, but like if in comparison to other Sosonko's books, I, I wouldn't maybe recommend it first, but as a standalone book, I, I wouldn't say that you would regret paying for it. Yeah, I, I agree. And it's the sort of thing where I would give certain chapters five and other chapters two and a half or three. Obviously, yeah. uh, the the later chapters, Tall and Petrosian, and the the Soviet era players that he knew being the strongest material. But overall, that stuff is so good that it's well worth it. And and the other stuff, you know, you do learn things about the champions. So I mean, it uh, has to be mentioned that the book doesn't have a single one star or two star reviews on Amazon, which which is already a significant feat in in the modern day. Yeah, it's true. Um, okay, and Vieco, you are yet another generous soul who volunteered to to make a donation um, in lieu of receiving any compensation for uh, this podcast. And um, you, I had made a suggestion that there's this guy, Tande, you, you just said you didn't know where to send the money. And there's this guy, Tande Onokoya, who is a chess teacher in Nigeria, who had a thread on Twitter that went viral, sort of telling the story of introducing chess to these, uh, these kids in the slums in Nigeria. And he showed a picture of a little girl um, that he introduced to chess and that he's using it um, as a vehicle to to um, to uplift people, basically. So I think it's a great cause. And Veko, you okay with sending a small donation to uh, the Chess in the Slums program initiative in Nigeria? Yeah, yeah, sure. I I, who could us for to you for pointing it out? Uh, because I have to say I wasn't quite familiar with with chess nonprofits organizations. So yeah, I mean, there's always. Sorry, go ahead. And this one is particularly noble, and I liked the course very much, and would definitely recommend everybody to check it out and. Contribute if they are able. 
Yeah, and Tunde's a good follow on Twitter. I mean, he's really out there trying to to generate, um, you know, notice for what he's doing, and of course, raise funds. Um, and pretty strong player. I mean, he's close to twenty two hundred feet. So, the the kids are in in good hands. Yeah. Um, Very inspiring so, stuff. Yeah, it's great. So uh, I'm gonna. I do have some blindfold puzzles for you guys who are still listening. But uh, Vieco, um, why don't I think we can say goodbye before I read those? Yeah, sure, sure. So thank you so much for your help. I mean, your your enthusiasm and knowledge of chess is uh, quite evident throughout. So I, I really appreciate it, Vieco. And you're one of the many people who I've corresponded with a lot online. So it was nice to finally hear your voice. Yeah, it's likewise. Uh, it was very. It, it was my honor to to be here, and and I hope I didn't monopolize the conversation too much. I, I have this tendency sometimes, but I was so excited to be here, and and it was really Im- immense pleasure to to go over this book. No, you definitely did not. And maybe we'll do another Sasanko book someday if you're up for it and if people um, request it. Yeah, yeah, sure. Perhaps after you invite him to your podcast and ask him why he hasn't yet written another one. I mean, what am I supposed to read these days? <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, you mentioned something about... So do you know if he's working on something or not? Do you? Cause no, no, I have no idea. Yeah, I hope he is. Uh, I mean, I, I'm not I'm not the one who said that he has his email address. I mean, just saying. Right, that's a good point. <laughs> I, I believe he's uh, 77. Um, so, yeah. um, but uh, as of a year and a half ago when I talked to him, still very sharp. So hopefully, um, hopefully he's still grinding away and going to tell a few more stories for us. But I don't, really, I don't really follow. Like these people mentioned, he he has articles published, but I, I have to be honest, I haven't ever read his article outside of the books. So I don't, I don't even, I'm not even sure where can you can find them. He's definitely had some in new in chess, although I don't recall any the super recently. So yeah, hopefully, hopefully that's because he's working on a book, but I'm not, I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, as as expected, there's just so many stories that we've we've done another long one. But Vieco, um, I know it's late where you are, so thank you again and uh, have a good night. Yeah, you too, Ben. Thanks once again for inviting me and looking forward to see what you have in store for oh, us. Oh yeah, and, and one. Oh, sorry to cut you off. Yeah, sure. Oh, but just one last plug: Chess Central's blog. You're on Twitter, um, Chessable. Anywhere else we need to um, shamelessly plug. Uh, no, that, 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 I think that's fine. Okay. All right. Have a good night, Viaco. Yeah, you too. And once again, thank you so much. All right, guys. It is time for the monthly blindfold chess puzzles. I shamelessly stole these puzzles from friend of the show, Say Chess One's Twitter feed, with his permission to be exact. But he's been sharing some cool blindfold puzzles that Say Chess One. So thank you to Martin. And these puzzles, I think, are both what I would call intermediate level. The second one's a little bit harder than the first. It is white to move and find the best continuation. Here is the piece placement. So white has a pawn on h4, a queen on c2, and a king on b1. Once again, that's a pawn on h4, a queen on c2, and a king on b1. Black has... Pawns on g7 and h5, a king on h7, and a queen on g6. Once again, black has pawns on g7 and h5, a king on h7, and a queen on g6. And once again, as always, if you go to the show description, there'll be a link where you can click 
to see the position if you need to, as well as uh, prose that describes where the pieces are if you need to look at it again. And then to find out the answer, you can just turn on the engine when you click through to the position. For puzzle number two, again, white to move. Again, intermediate puzzle. This one's probably slightly harder. White has a rook on A1 and a king on D2. Black has pawns on B2 and C2 and a king on B4. And that's all. But to repeat the whole thing, white has a rook on A1 and a king on D2. And black has pawns on B2 and C2 and their king is on B4. White to move, find the best combination. And that's all for this month's uh, chess book podcast. Thanks for listening, everyone. Take care. Special thanks, as always, to my producer, Matthew Passy, and thanks to those who continue to help spread the word about Perpetual Chess. Positive reviews on podcast platforms and YouTube help people discover the show, as does telling a friend or sharing it on social media. Speaking of which, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Beneficial1 or join the Perpetual Chess Facebook group and continue the conversation about the latest interview. But most of all, of course, I want to thank those who provide financial support to the show, especially right now with so much disruption going on in the world. Most of all, I want to thank Chessable for sponsoring the show and to everyone who kicks in via PayPal or the Perpetual Chess Patreon page to help sustain and improve Perpetual Chess. And without further ado, I would like to give special thanks to the following people and entities. Chessable, Quality Chess Books, the Capital City Chess Club, the Print Chess Twitch Channel, Andrew Alharjri, Andrew Bach, Austin Clough, Benjamin Porto, Bill Sigler, Kathy Carr, Chad Oliver, Chris Flanagan, Dan O'Hanlon, Danny Davidson, David Driver, I am Dimitri Schneider, I am Eric Rosen, Faraz Sawaf, Gary Foreman, Greg Natal, Greg Shahadi, Guven Manet, James Kennedy, Jen Scream, John Jernigan, John Rockefeller, John Cromarty, John MacArthur, Kelly Palmer, Kevin O'Callaghan, Lucio Casada Silva, the law offices of Stuart Katz, Michael Kahn, FM Michael Oblin, Mike Zelazny, Moonmaster 9000, you recently stopped your pledge, but Perpetual Chess will always love you. The famous Mr. Dodgy, Peter Zhodi, Reuven Fisher, Seattle Chess Club, Thomas Stonix, Thomas Tachenko, Todd Bryan of Strong Chess, Todd Kennedy, and I also would like to thank the following people. Aaron Waffler, Ace Viega, Adam Ralph of ChessEngland.com, Adrian Gutierrez, Alex Pejas, FM Andre Terakov, Dr. Andrew Perry, Anidi Deer, Better Chess Training, Bill Juniper, Bill Moran, Brad and Andy Rosen, Brett Howard Lynn, Brian Mullis, Chad Hilton, Dr. Charles Snodgrass, Chris Wainscott, Christopher Baumgartner, Christopher Shabri, Chris Lott, Christopher Wood, I am Christoph Zalecki, a.k.a. Chess Explained, Coach Jay's Chess Academy, Costa Carras, Courtney Fry, Craig Malin, Daniel Gell, Daniel Ginsberg, Daniel Lucas of U.S. Chess, Daniel Naylor, Dave Saylor, David Blaskacek, David Cramley of Chessable.com, Daylin Shelton, Dirk Decker, Dwayne Edmonds, Ed Daly, Ethan Smith, Ian Mason, I am Elect Donnie Ariel, or possible not I am Elect, Fox Valley Chess Club, Francis Letart Lavoie, Frank Tortoris, MD, Gary Andrews, Gary Lewis, Geert Vandervelt, Gerard Barter, Giovanni Russo, Greg Harfst, Han Schut, Harish Srinivasan, Jacob Kovac, Jacques Pari, James Aspinwall, James Benastia, James Murr, Jason Willem, JD Chakrabarty, Jeff Anderson, Jeffrey Martello, Yep Holland, Jerry Wells, Jim Ratliff, JJ Schnod, Dr. John Fallon, John Fernandez, John Fontaine, John Hartman, John Jeffrey, John McMurtry, Jonathan Slater, Jordan Goodwin, Jose Rodriguez, Justin Gardner, 
Jen Shahadi, Joe Rocky, John Thompson, Grandmaster Josh Friedel, I am Kare Christensen, WGM Katerina Nemsova, Kelly Palmer, I am Kostya Kovyutsky, Krishna Kapalakrishnan, Kyle McAvoy, Larry Ryforth, Laura Belyowski, Martin Knudsen, Martin Krug, Matthew Passy, Matthew Tedesco of SeattleChessMeetup.org, the Mechanics Institute Chess Club of San Francisco, Michael Allard, Miguel Araspeedy, Mike Clem, Mr. Mike Shahadi, Mitchell Fabian, Nate Salin, Neil Bruce, Negmat Malajanov, Olaf Mueller-Michaels, GM Pascal Charbonneau, Posse Passanen, Paul Bain, Paul Clarkson, Paul Sweeney, Paulo Santana, Peter Lux, Randall Temple, Ricky Grahava, Richard Hollenbuck, Robert Turner, Roy Yearwood, Ryan Berg, the Say Chess YouTube channel, Scott Doherty, Scott McKinnon, Sebastian Finsterwalder, Stefan Roller, WGM Tatia of Abrahamian, Tim Brennan of TacticsTime.com, Tim Seymour, Timothy Ha, Tom Edsel, Tomas Komanich, Tony Rotella, Tyron Price, Vishnu Srikumar, Wayne Beam, William Brock, William Juniper, William Hogarth, William Peterson, FM Zhao Cheng of Chess1000.com, and last but never least, Zivko Stoyanov. Thanks for listening, everyone. Catch you guys soon. Podcast Network. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.